have Denise Rucker-Krupp on the Carry On podcast. Denise is a fellow veteran. She served as senior counsel to the U.S. House Committee on Homeland Security, former chief counsel for U.S. Maritime Administration, and a locally elected official in D.C. She is also, and we will delve into this on the podcast, is the cousin of Colonel Edmund Winchester Rucker, whom Fort Rucker, Alabama is named after. Denise has been a leading advocate for removing the Confederate names on military installations. Hi, Denise. How are you? Hey, great. Thanks for having me today. Thank you for being here. We have so much to talk about. I'd like to start out a little bit and talk about your Coast Guard career and how you ended up in the Coast Guard. Sure. I joined the Coast Guard in the summer of 1998. Uh, I was recruited out of law school. And I can still remember my parents, you know, when I told them I was joining the Coast Guard, they're like, uh, excuse me, you grew up in the Army. Why are you not going into the Army? And it's like, well, because that's like all bases. And I just, I don't do that anymore. I don't look good in green is my response. And I said, I look much better in blue. So I joined. And did you do a, like a direct commission or how did you do that? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. It, it was, um, God, it was epic. Uh so that summer, I took the summer of 1998, I took the bar exam, which was two grueling days of just like, do you ever see the, um, the, the film uh, Harry Potter where Dumbledore like takes the stuff out of his brain and he implants it somewhere else? I haven't, no. Oh, okay. Well, for folks who've watched it, that's what it felt like for two days. I mean, it was like I was trying to get all the stuff out of my brain and dump it on a paper. And then three days later, I was direct commission officer school and they're like, you need to go run now you need to go do sit-ups. It's like, okay, this is great. This, this, this is a great service to be in. I'm thrilled after spending the entire uh, summer studying. So it was, it was phenomenal. It was 30 days in uh, Yorktown, Virginia. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I can still remember, again, I grew up in the army. Both my parents were army officers. And my father's like, wait a second. I did four years of West Point. I did all of this training in order to become an officer and you did 30 days of what? <laughs> yeah, it like, doesn't quite seem legal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> there were many a dinner conversation about how I became an officer in the military. Yes, yeah. But I, I served for four years, yeah. And then what, what did you do for your, for your job? I know you were a lawyer, but what kind of law did you work on? Uh, so I did two years writing legislation for the Coast Guard. When I was in college, I had interned for a member of Congress, Charlie Rose in North Carolina. And uh, when the, the kind of the jobs were opening up, they said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to headquarters in D.C. and do general law or claims and litigation? Do you want to go on the field? I saw that uh, there was a job opening in LLX, which was legislation. I said, that, that sounds like perfect opportunity. And, and I did it. So I worked in uh, legislation for two years. And so that was summer of 98, the summer of 2000. And then I took what was called an out-of-specialty uh, tour into international affairs, which, you know, it's the summer of 2000. This could be a, an interesting job. I mean, at that time, the Coast Guard was doing, you know, drug interdiction, migrant interdiction, and fisheries. And then a little incident called 9-11 occurred. And I got to see how a federal agency rapidly changed from being, again, small fisheries, 30, about 30,000 at that point in time, to ramping up to protecting our country's ports and seafarers. Sea and just, it was just an amazing opportunity to, you know, just, just to be there and to see what had happened. And this is while you were still on active duty. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I was, an inter I was um, a lowly lieutenant and, you know, my <laughs> boss was advising the commandant on international affairs. And so it was like, you know, I, I was just, I, I felt like I was in the middle of something amazing and never expected, but definitely just to see how the agency adapted to make sure that they could protect everything that needed to be protected on the maritime side. I mean, it sounds yeah. like such a great opportunity for a lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. Again, it was just fortuitous that I was in headquarters, I was in international affairs, and then I got to see just everything that was stood up within the Coast Guard to help protect uh, maritime security. And, um, and then I, I went to TSA after that and helped stand up uh, another agency. And, and that was, that was surreal. Uh, that was me taking the uniform off. And I had been in an agency which had been around for 200 years to joining one that was barely uh, at that point in time, probably five or six months old. 
And so I showed up and, you know, there was no desk, there was no computer, there were no pens. And they said, could you go out and buy us some paper? <laughs> okay, I'm sure. Why not? I could, I could do that. And they're like, and are you going to be okay without a computer? It's like, I, I think I can figure this whole thing out. Uh, but, it, you know, we went from at TSA uh, in the first year from zero employees to 50,000 employees. Wow. Yeah. 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 And um, they asked me to do legislation for them because, again, that was my specialty in the Coast Guard. And, they, and I, uh, I did it. And then the December of that year, uh, oh, yeah, December of, of uh, 2002, they said, look, you know, the lawyer who's up in Boston at Logan, um, you know, he needs a break. He's been working seven days a week for the past six months. Can you go up there and be an airport attorney? I was like, um, okay, uh, I don't know anything about aviation law. I don't know anything. And they said, yep, but you are a lawyer <laughs> and you have a military background and you will go do what you need to get done. So I was like, Roger that. Let's, okay. And, and, and I, I'm really glad I had the military training because I, I think, but for that, I would have freaked out. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm at Logan Airport and you want me to be the main lawyer for like one of the biggest airports in the world? And like, nope military training, put your girl, big girl panties on and just get the job done. Get out there and do it. You just do it. Yep. So it was kind yeah, of fun. That is just absolutely fascinating that you went from the Coast Guard right into almost creating the TSA. Like yeah. who gets to say that? That is, that is just really fascinating. It, it was just fortuitous timing. Yeah. Yeah. And how long did you stay in that position? I was at TSA from uh, 2002 until right after Katrina hit in 2005. Okay. And um, there was an, an, another new entity that the House Homeland Security Committee was being stood up. It, it had been around for about a year plus change. And, the, and they were looking for people with my background for um, Coast Guard, which some people had, but nobody had had a TSA background. And they're like, well, you kind of know this agency. Do you want to come in and help us do oversight over TSA? Like, okay, sure. So I, I worked for the House Homeland Security Committee for four years. Wow, that is awesome. Were you the only female on that committee? I was not the only female on the committee, but I was the first one pregnant on oh. that committee. Oh, <laughs> yes. Do yes. tell. Yes. Uh, so Congress doesn't abide by the other rules. So, you know, in the, in the federal system, um, you have FMLA and you have leave and you have all these rules that apply to civilian agencies. That doesn't happen for Congress. They kind of each member um, or each committee makes up its own rules. So when I became the first one pregnant for both, by the way, the Democrats and the Republicans, everybody was looking very closely at the situation going like, how much time is Denise going to get? And Chairman Thompson gave me uh, three months. Okay. Yeah. But but, but, by the way, three months paid leave. And I was called back into the office within about a month for negotiations. So I brought my baby in and I can still remember, you know, it was a surreal meeting between Chairman Thompson and uh, then Chairman Oberstar, who's since passed away. And um, Oberstar kept looking at me, kept going, there's a baby in this room. Like, "Uh (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh-huh. And guess what? If this goes long, this is going to get really interesting because the baby's going to be hungry. And then what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah, I remember when was it Senator Duckworth brought her baby on the floor of Congress? Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, this was like way before this happened, way before that happened. But oh yeah, and I yeah. remember that hit the news and everybody was talking about it. And I guess that the baby was like dressed up, had like the correct uh, dress code on for being on the floor. Right, right, but, right. I, I was like, you got to be kidding me. But yeah, I mean, I I helped kind of pave a path for pregnant ladies behind me because everybody came to me like, all right, how much time did you get? What did you do? How did you do it? I'm like, okay, an unexpected trailblazer. Here I am. But well, yeah. at the time, did you think three months paid? Did you think that was a good deal? Yes. Yeah, okay. I did. Um, and you have to understand, I'm the main breadwinner for my family. Okay. So my husband at that point in time was a stay-at-home dad. Mm. So I, I was very um, conscious of the fact that I was the main breadwinner, and I wanted to make sure that I could. Um, yeah, I could still succeed. Um, and, and it was kind right. of a decision that we had made years prior to that. So um, when I was uh, when I was on active duty, I got married to my husband. We were both active duty officers. 
and then Tim got out and um, stayed home after our first daughter was born. And so he was already home. And then that was, I had my second daughter when I was on the Hill. And uh, it, 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 it was, I, I just, I've used it as teaching experiences for other women because people say, oh, you know, pregnancy is hard or having young children is hard. It's like, well, actually it can kind of be fun. I mean, I brought both my daughters into negotiations. And so um, when I was pregnant, I'd look at the guys and go, I'm only going to get bigger and crankier. <laughs> so are you sure you want to slow roll me on negotiations? And they thought I was joking until I was eight months pregnant. They're like, oh, you weren't like, uh-huh, kind of told you. And then with the two-year-old, I would bring her into negotiations. And again, people would stare at me like, I've got a two sugar cookie roll. I will give her two sugar cookies while we negotiate. If we are not done by those two sugar cookies and she screams for a third one. We will be done then. We will be done then. And it only took once. And people were like, oh my God, you're, you're, you're bringing this child in. It's like, yeah, it kind of speeds things up, doesn't it? Oh, wow. That's so interesting. So you would, you encourage, you would encourage women professionally now to have children and absolutely. simultaneously keep their careers moving? Absolutely. Yes. I, I think it makes you a better boss. I think it makes you a better manager. I think mm-hmm. it makes you understand a lot more about life. And I think it gives you perspective. Uh, like, you know, do the small things, should, should you be focusing on some things or because you have so much going on at home, do you really have a better idea of what really is important and what can just be blown off or, you know, done another day? Mm-hmm. And then you, I'm sure you want the people around you to cut to the chase so you can work on what's important at that moment and not. Oh, you mean don't bullshit? You no mean bullshit. don't bullshit me? Yeah, no yes. bullshit. <laughs> no yeah, bullshit. that's exactly. Yeah. But I am curious, what, do you happen to know what the maternity leave is currently for that committee? Three months. Okay, it stayed at three months. I yeah, was just curious. And, and I can guarantee you with the first Republican, because I know who she was, she came to me, she's like, we're going to do the same thing because you, you set the gold standard. I'm like, okay, yeah. I was actually hoping it, they had given them, they, it had it lengthened a little bit, but. No, no, three months. Yeah. Okay, so after the Hill and you had, is that was that your first or second child? That would have been your second, right? Second, yep. Okay. And then where did you go after that? You went to the, you, you became the chief counsel of U.S. United States Maritime Administration. Yes. So how, how did that, I mean, that is, that is amazing. Can you walk me through like that process? Well, that happens when a new administration comes in and they say they don't want to hire any lobbyists. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So when the Obama folks came in, in 2009, they said, we're not going to hire any lobbyists. It was like, all right, well, if you're not hiring lobbyists, who are you hiring? And that was Hill staffers. Oh, Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was approached to apply for the job as, as chief counsel of the Maritime Administration because I had had a military background, uh, uh, knew uh, about Merad because of my work on the Hill. And so they, uh, folks had approached and said, would you apply? And I applied. Um, and about five months after I did that, uh, I was asked you know, to take the job. So I arrived at the agency in September of 2009. And how long did you stay at the agency? I was there until about uh, February of 2012. Okay, so you were there for about three years. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then, okay, when as we know that, um, as we know that you didn't stay there, so mm-hmm. I'll let you unfold that story. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, if so, you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I've heard it before, but I want to hear it again. <laughs> yeah, uh, so when I first joined the agency in September of 2009, I was made aware of sexual assaults that were occurring at the school. And they were sexual assaults of students on student. Um, there were uh, statements made. It, it was um, possibly adult on student. And then when students were going out to sea for their sea year, that individuals who were on the ships with them were also sexually assaulting them. Wow. Yeah, and um, it was bad. So I was trying to address the situation in 09 and 10, and then I had a whistleblower come forward in the summer of 2011. And uh, in addition to the sexual assault allegations, there were other allegations of fiscal uh, impropriety. And it was just, it it was a very, um, 
it kind of capped off a very toxic situation. Um, so I talked to the whistleblower, and under my signature, I sent a letter to the then Department of Transportation Inspector General asking for an investigation into sexual assaults at the school. And I did that, again, under my signature as the then Chief Counsel of the Maritime Administration. Okay. Uh, the next day, I was... Um, Ray LaHood, who was the secretary, uh, demanded my presence. And so I went up... I, I was like... I don't know, like five floors below him. So I went upstairs to his office and he was like, I'm not seeing you in person. Like, but you told me, you know, so I, I went to a conference room and he just yelled and screamed and how dare you do this and what were you thinking and you need more supervision and you're not loyal. And it's just like, my, my head was spinning. It was like, uh, uh, <laughs> wait a second here. I've got multiple cases of sexual assault. I've got all of these allegations. What do you mean? What was I doing? Um, and so he was, uh, the end result of that conversation was that he went to the then Deputy Secretary of Transportation, John Picari, and the then Chief Counsel, uh, General Counsel of DOT, Ray, uh, Bob Rifkin, and said, tell the IG not to do the investigation. And then he told Bob Rifkin, she needs more supervision. Um, you need to actually supervise her. Good day. So, yeah, that, that went through my mind. Uh, yeah, so um, I went from being a chief counsel that had a lot of latitude. And, and that, was, that conversation happened about September of 2011. So after that, um, I, a couple of things changed. Uh, every week I'd have to go upstairs to the general counsel's office and report what I was doing, sort of like I was five and I was on a, you know, I, 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 I was in the corner because I had screwed up. So I, I had to tell them everything I was doing. And then I was to have nothing else to do with King's Point because it was made very clear that I was um, not to be trusted, that I was disloyal and I was incompetent. Why do you think they were... Why do you think that they felt that that was disloyal? Like, I guess I can't wrap my mind around why you wanting to investigate an issue, especially a sexual assault issue. Like, why is, how is that disloyal to your, your position? Well, okay, let, let's kind of look at the year. It was 2011, not 2017. And okay. at that point in time, you know, nobody talked about sexual assaults. This was before Me Too. This was before Michigan. This was before Cal. This was before Ohio State. You know, this was, Denise, you're rocking the boat. We should have handled this quietly. How dare you bring this into the open? You're going to shine a bad light on a federal institution. This is not good. And, oh, you're also a political appointee. You're going to make the president look bad. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine that happening today. And like you said, it was, it was so early in this, but yes. if, if yeah. that happened today, I mean, it would never happen today like that. Um, I, I, I would hope not. Would hope but not. Remember, right. But so remember one of the names I just shared, John Picari? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was up to be secretary of transportation under the Biden administration. Oh, Wow. Let's bring and him back. Yeah, and, and he <laughs> is currently advising the Biden transition team on transportation issues. Yeah. Oh wow! Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yep. how long? So you ultimately left, or you ultimately were forced out of that position, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So Prakari again advising Biden on transportation uh, pulled me aside in February of 2012 and said, "Guess what? You can either resign willingly, or we're going to fire you today." So um, I chose the resignation path and they gave me three months and um, they made it very clear that, um, yeah, it was going to be very difficult for, for me to find a job after that. Yeah. They were going to make sure of that. Oh yeah. They blackballed me. Yeah. It, in fact, every, because I chose the resignation path instead of the firing path, they got to look at every job that I applied for during that uh, next three months. Okay, because it would come to them as a supervisor approval? No, or? because it came to them as an ethics. Because when you're a political appointee and you're looking for a new job, under the ethics rules, the uh, lawyers get to review every application that you put in. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So did it take you a long time to find another job or did you just say, screw this? It took about six months and that the next job occurred after I had left DOT and after they had the ability to look at all of my job applications. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, during that period of time, I was advised to leave the country for seven years. That was my favorite statement. What? Oh, yeah. wait, 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 what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to what? To let things cool down? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had a Democratic um, operative who knew my story take me to lunch and said, you know, kind of think it'd be a good, good opportunity for you to like leave the country for seven years. Because you would like them to investigate sexual assault at the academy? Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Just, I just wanted to make sure I was tracking what you're, you were, that you were supposedly guilty of or guilty of, you know. Right. Yeah. I, I am gu- you are I guilty. Am guilty of, yes. Yes. Uh, yep. <laughs> Advocating yep. for sexual assault victims. Yes, you are guilty. Yep. Well, to move forward, well, first off, I'm really sorry that happened. That's horrible. But like we said today, I don't think that would happen. And let's hope that wouldn't happen. But I guess somebody had to go through that and it was you. So thank right. you. Um, but I do yeah. want to talk about, um, so I saw this on your LinkedIn page that they finally did do the first, the uh, finally the first sexual assault victim from any of the academies, right? From any of the five federal academies yeah. finally won a lawsuit. And I think it was one point something million. $1.4 million. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk on that? Because first I'm curious as to your thoughts on it so many years later happening. And mm-hmm. then also how it actually happened because I was looking, I was looking at what a, how how the process occurred and like from your legal standpoint how we weren't able to do this sooner so okay so the assault happened in the um in the fall of 2016 which pisses me off (laughs) because it was student on a student it um and what was found out later was that the older uh students on the soccer team were sexually assaulting the younger ones so wow. I had asked for an IG investigation in 2011. IG didn't do it. Apparently this was going on. And so a, a, a kid gets assaulted. By the way, he's not the only one. And it was um, a hazing ritual, right? Yeah, or- yeah, yeah. It was hazing, you know. We, we apparently sexually assault is, you know, a good way to prove your manhood or, or whatever bullshit we've got going on today. Um, so the student files a Federal Tort Claims Act against the United States. Um, they go to arbitration, and that's when the arbiter uh, states that, uh, this, that the U.S. government owes the student $1.4 million. Now, the, the interesting part about this uh, litigation is that uh, US, it occurred at a school in which the UCMJ is not a um, subject to. So the really? four schools, yeah, yeah. So you've got um, uh, West Point, Annapolis, Coast Guard Academy, and Air Force. The moment those students step on uh, onto that property, they are subject to UCMJ. UCMJ is not applicable to U.S. Merchant Marine Academy students until they serve on active duty in the military. So it's civilian law. It's civilian law. So this case is um, of precedent because it's the first of the five, but would they be successful at the other four? I don't know. Well, that's why. That was exactly what I was wondering, what the difference was between that case and some of, you know, and every other case. Right. Yeah. So the, the difference is the fact that it's civilian law. So mm-hmm. when I was the chief counsel, um, I had asked DOJ, because it's, it's usually DOJ you go to, to prosecute a couple of cases. So that, that's who you go to. And DOJ is the one that defends uh, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in litigation. So how did you feel so many years later that this was – one still going on and two that it took this long. Were you bitter or were you, how did you feel? Uh, I was pissed off at LaHood, Picari, and Rifkin for stopping the investigation in 2011. Um, can I say for an absolute certainty that if they had acted in 2011 that the, that the incident would have happened in 2016? I don't know. But it sure could have, you know, inhibited activities like this. It could have, it could have stopped it. Um, so I, I was angry at those three. I was sad for the student. I mean, 
can you imagine the amount of work the student and his parent did to get him into the school to seek a congressional nomination? I just, I, I felt a lot of sorrow for him and his family. I mean, they had, they probably had just, this was a life goal. I mean, to go to one of the five federal schools, to fill out the paperwork, to do the interviews, to show up on the first day with your parents. And then within probably weeks, because it, he was, he was a, a freshman, to be sexually assaulted. I mean, that's just, that's horrific. And by sexually assaulted by somebody else who's congressionally nominated. Right? I mean, I mean that's just, that's just mind-blowing. It's just, it's awful. It is. And he was playing a sport, which, you know, that, that's always fun yeah. in college to be playing a, it was a soccer team, I think, or. Yeah, yeah. He was recruited to come in there. And so, you know, you're just really jazzed to show up at a school and then to suffer the trauma that he suffered is just, it's just, it's just so sad. And it was unnecessary. And it sounds like that case took a couple of years too. I mean, it It did. It did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of money, but I'm sure that he would rather have not had the experience. I mean, you know, the one point something million. Right. I, I mean, you want to go to a school that you've been dreaming out, that you graduate from, and then you go take a job in the industry, not a school that you've left after three months because you've been sexually assaulted. And that's just, no, that, that just that just can't happen. Um, and, and so it, it was, and then I read the story in Politico uh, where the, the, the boy's lawyer was talking about how um, Bob Barr, Attorney General Barr, was the one who, uh, who approved it. And that's why I wrote the essay in the Washington, that's more of, I guess, a letter to the editor of the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And I called him a Me Too hero. And my friend's like, "Um, Denise, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Denise, you just called Bob Barr a Me Too hero. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I sure did. I sure did. I mean, this case is unheard of. It's unprecedented. And he's the one who made the decision to pay the money. So absolutely, he, he should be called a Me Too hero. I thought it was great when I read it. I was like that. And when, and the article that you were responding to, I think had pretty much trashed him. So you were bringing the point out that, you know, that he actually has done some really, really amazing things. Yes. And I think that story should be told, by the way, I'm now moving the phone because the cat is with me right now. (laughs) Um, Before we get into the topic, I'm really excited to talk to you about. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, what, how you feel about the Vanessa Guillen bill and that moving forward and kind of just, um, I think obviously it's a little bit too late, but you, just your thoughts on that current situation. So I testified about military sexual assault in 2014. I testified twice, um, once behind closed doors because, well, wouldn't want to have anybody hear that there are military lawyers that support changing the current system. And then the other was on um, C-SPAN. Oh. And I, I, yeah, 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 it was a C-SPAN. It was taped. And I was asked, was I ever given a legal order? And I said, yes. And, and, they, and, and uh, they asked, well, what are you talking about? And I said, well, um, I tried to stop sexual assault. And the then, deputy, or sorry, the then Secretary of Transportation stopped an IG investigation. So I, I kind of think that's kind of an illegal order to the IG. Um, didn't get a single um, single question after that, and uh, you know, so, and I had testified as a Coast Guard officer and Marat chief counsel. On the other panel, or, or sorry, the other members of the panel were talking about what they had seen. So, 2014, and when I heard about the Vanessa Guillen um, legislation, I kept thinking about what had gone on in 2014. What would have happened if? legislation had been enacted, say, in the fall of 2014, in the spring of 2015, could that have stopped? Again, I don't know. But what I do know is that a lot more tension is being placed on the military right now because of what happened to Vanessa Guillen. And it's my hope that um, more action is taken. And, And I have a little more confidence in 2000, at the end of 2020 than I did at the beginning of 2014. And the reason I have that confidence is because of the number of people who were fired 
at Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. Again, never happened before. A significant no, number. Yeah, a significant number, and they were fired because they failed to address a toxic culture. And this wasn't something that was hidden under wraps where nobody heard of. This was in your face. We are going to publish it, and we're going to tell everybody. So, yeah, I, I, I think change is happening. It, it's slower than I would have hoped for, but I think it's, it's, it's something that I, I would not have um, thought would have occurred even six months ago. So it, it, I'm glad to see it happening. And a lot of those, uh, a lot of those uh, soldiers that were fired were high ranking too. We weren't just like high, we weren't just firing platoon leaders or platoon sergeants. Like we oh were yeah, yeah. You mean like a couple of generals? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. So I think that that yeah. also made a very big point that we're not messing around here, and we're going to hold these people accountable for, like you said, toxic right. leadership. But that's yeah, yeah, and, and that's what the inspectors had found was just a very toxic leadership that was known for several years and people do instead of addressing it just kind of kept passing the buck like i'm not going to clean it up not it's not going to happen on my watch yeah well i remember reading that her um drill sergeants had told her like just be really careful when you're going to that unit like we're worried like we're kind of worried about you going where where she was going and like they had told her ahead of time like you know it's going to be tough and i just think that that's horrible that you're telling a soldier that you have to tell a soldier before they go to their first duty station that you're in for trouble like that's um, horrible. Well, that's horrible, but all right, let me go back to something I was doing back in the fall of 2009 and 2010. I gave presentations at a um, Women on the Water conference that was held for uh, female students who were attending Kings Point and the six state uh, maritime schools. And the classes we were teaching in 2010 were keep your doors open when you're at sea. Don't go drinking with the male sailors. Don't touch them. Don't flirt with them. And it was more of like, these are actions you as a female should not be uh, taking. Whereas what we should have been teaching in Mm -hmm. 2010 was kick them in the balls. (laughs) Right. Or we should have been teaching the male soldiers what they should not be doing. Right. Like it is not acceptable to get your female sailor drunk and then rape her. That's a no, no. You can be prosecuted for that one. No, Mm -hmm. that's not what we were teaching. And and so, again, in the past decade, there has been an amazing amount of change. Many men and women have had to suffer, Mm -hmm. and they suffer traumatically to make this happen. But there has been change. I agree with you, and I agree with the point that many have suffered. And I look forward to seeing what happens. But, yeah, I think that there's also a sadness in it that it did take this long. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, it, it, it so. did. And, and, that, and that's hard. That, that's really it hard. Is. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I've done about it. I, um, I've used that as an experience to teach college students how to hold leaders accountable. And, um, you know, and I've, I've taught them, I said, look, don't make the assumption that they have your interests at heart. So if you have been sexually assaulted, you immediately call the police. You hold your school leaders accountable if they've known about sexual assault occurring on campus and failing to address it. So, I, you know, that's a type of course that I've done. And then because of what I learned, uh, because of my experience, I successfully sued the Department of Justice. Several oh, wow, years you know, just sued the Department of Justice, you know. Yeah, I, just, yeah, I did. <laughs> and what did yeah, you sue I, them for? I simply wanted to know how many rapes they were prosecuting in Washington, D.C., I actually, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And you, you actually had a hard time with that though. Like they wouldn't give you that information. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's, that's where I also learned that politics can be fascinating. Um, You had to get Grassley involved and. Yeah. So that this is the summer of, of actually it was January of 2016. So this is the Obama administration that I sued. Um, And I asked like, yeah, I'm a former political appointee, now an elected official, suing my former boss. <laughs> yes, um, noted. Yeah, that, that, that's a little interesting. Uh, like, how many crimes are you prosecuting? And they kept saying, we don't keep that data. And, Bullshit. Uh, pretty much. And that's when Senator Grassley, who was chair of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, said, well, tell you what, if you want your U.S. attorney for D.C. to be confirmed, you'll share the information with me. So they shared it with Grassley and then kept telling the court, we don't have this information. We don't have this information. Like, you, you've got to be kidding me. 
this is ridiculous, but I, f I finally did get it in uh, late November of 2016. And were you shocked? Could you, could you see why they were trying to hide it? Oh, absolutely. You mean that they didn't want people to know they were not prosecuting rapes and murders and homicides and aggravated assaults? Yeah. Yeah, that, that data is very shocking. And then I uh, submitted another FOIA the following year. So I have the information from 2010 through 2018. Um, and then I submitted another one yesterday. <laughs> What's this one for? for the it's for the same thing, for, you know, prosecution of data for 2018, 19, and 20. I mean, it, even though I successfully sued and I did get the information, they've never put it online. So I have to, in order to obtain the information, I have to keep foying for them. Yeah, and I understood from what I, from what I, from what I understand of it, they only gave it to you for that period, and it was a one-time thing. Yes, it, it's a one-time shot. That was it. And I was like, mm, no, don't think so. Uh, you know, it, this needs to be available to everybody. I, I, I shouldn't be an elected official foying the federal government just to find out if you prosecuted a rape that occurred in my neighborhood. Right. That, that, right. That's just, that's that's nonsense. Well, uh, good luck with that, and I'm sure you'll. I'm sure that the information will be released. I mean, your goal, right, is to have it released publicly, just have it yes. be public knowledge all yes, the time, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I'm assuming that's the ultimate yeah. goal here. Yes, that is. All right. Well, since I since I had you on my podcast last, this is your right. this is your second yeah. podcast with me. Um, let's talk about uh, your descendants. Uh, I know you have a descendant. Um, that Fort Rucker is named after, and also one that Fort Benning is named after. Yep. So yeah. you've had a very busy year doing a lot of advocacy. So I'll let you talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay. Well, let, let's start with the summer. Um, so, uh, that, well, actually, going to have to go back a couple of, a little over 100 years ago. Um, so, my great-great-grandfather was Speaker of the House of Representatives. Okay. And uh, because he was Speaker, he was Speaker around 1850, his portrait um, prior to about mm, June-ish of this year hung in the U.S. Capitol. Mm. And I was re always really puzzled, puzzled why his portrait hung there because after he served um, as House Speaker, he was the Governor of Georgia, he was Secretary of Treasury, and then he was president of the Confederate Congress. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, um, so, and in that role, he made a play to be president of the Confederacy. He lost to Jefferson Davis, and then because he was president of the Confederate Congress, swore Jefferson Davis into office and then served as a army general in the uh, Confederate War. Whew. As, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an that's an interesting history. Right. Yeah. So let, let's go there. So um, Speaker Pelosi has the ability, to, you know, every speaker had the ability to remove his portrait. And after George Floyd died, I sent a letter to Speaker Pelosi and said, you know what, I think it's time you take his portrait down. And when I grew up, I always thought he was the only one. No, there, there were four speakers that had served in the Confederacy. So uh, he was one of four portraits that was taken down this summer. I thought, all right, good. That, so we got the portrait down. Um, but oh, by the way, we still have Confederate flags that are flying on military bases. And um, I had served in the Coast Guard. And my great-great-grandfather, like I said, had, had been Secretary of Treasury, was a service secretary of the Coast Guard. And um, I sent a letter to the current commandant, Admiral um, Schultz, and asked him, to uh, remove the Confederate flag from Coast Guard property. I saw that and I couldn't believe you pulled that off. Like, congratulations. That, that is, how, how did you do that? I mean, I know you wrote the letter, but I mean, it couldn't have been that easy. Um, I just kind of was very active on Twitter and social media and in the press and said, look, it is not acceptable for the Confederate flag to be flying on Coast Guard property. And, you know, this was after the Marines had already banned the flag and the Navy had banned the flag. Okay. And I kept going, okay, where's the Coast Guard? Why, why is the Coast Guard taking the same steps? And so it, it took probably at least four to five weeks after the Navy and the Marine Corps banned the Confederate flag for the Coast Guard to act. Okay. But because you were, they're, they're, go ahead. 
so you know you've got the big DOD can make the decision for for the four, but Coast Guard is in the Department of Homeland Security. So whatever you know, they didn't have to abide by what the DOD decision was, and I knew that because again I served in the Coast Guard, served at TSA, so that's why I was um, encouraging Admiral Schultz to the best that I could to ban the Confederate flag on Coast Guard property, and and finally that happened. So that was that was the Confederate flag, and then we get to flip to the Army side of my family, go back there to uh, Fort Rucker and uh, Fort Benning. So th those are the two cousins. And um, was also very active um, in social media as, and, and in the press. Politico had come to me and they said, look, we're going to do an article about the descendants of uh, Confederate main bases. Would you be willing to talk to us? And I said, absolutely. So I talked to them. I talked to several other folks and, and made it very clear that it wasn't going to be the families of the folks, um, the families for which the, the bases were named, they were not going to be the ones that held up the renaming process. We were not the reason why okay. the bases had to keep their names. I mean, you're not going to hear a Rucker say Fort Rucker needs to stay. It's just, it's just not going to happen because collectively we believe that the name should change. And so that's why I was thrilled when the house and the Senate both voted to do it. And then when the president, um, vetoed the NDAA claiming that there is military history and heritage. I kept thinking, mm -hmm. you mean my cousins and my grandfathers and great grandfathers that all committed treason? That's, that's, the, that's the history. Oh, goody. You know, I'm sorry, but several of my family members had to get presidential pardons. I mean, they're presidential pardons because of their treason. So please don't lecture me on military history. Wow. Now it did pass yeah. the it did pass the House and it did pass the Senate as well? Or is there a vote so in January? The, uh so the original bill was the House, the Senate, and then the president vetoed the legislation. And then earlier this week the House voted to override the presidential veto. Mm -hmm. And then sorry, here's the cat again. Um <laughs> then the Senate votes next week to uh override the presidential veto. So that this will be the only piece of legislation that had to be subject to a president to a override in the past four years. Interesting. So, yeah, that that's been, yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's just not something I ever expected at the beginning of 2020 to have to lobby for. Well, let me ask you this question because, uh, well, first to our listeners, um, the article is why the descendants of Confederate generals are happy to see their names go. That's the name of the article and it's in political. If you want to check it out. And um, I wanted to ask you, so it talks about how the AP Hill family actually feels the opposite that you do. And I was just wondering how you feel about that. And like, if you, have you talked to them or have you not even had a discussion with them about it since it's kind of in the same article and... I'm sorry, you, you kind of, the, the, the cat decided to do something. Can you repeat the question? <laughs> um, I was curious how you felt about, uh, because it talks about how the AP Hill family is actually is against removing the name of their descendant. And so I wondered how you felt about that, having, having different views on that. You know, it, many times in my life, I've had to swear an oath to the United States. I had to swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And this is a very similar type of an oath that these, the individuals for whom these bases are named for also swore, because the majority of them served in the U.S. military prior to serving in, as Confederate leaders. Um, okay. So, you know... There are famous paintings where, you know, students at Annapolis and West Point deliberately left the school to go fight against those that they had once studied with. You know, these group of men, they were predominantly men, knew each other because they had trained together. They'd gone to school together. They had fought together in the Mexican-American War. So I understand it is hard to say my family committed treason. It is not a statement that most people 
ever want to say, nor would they ever want to acknowledge, but it is something that my family has. My family has acknowledged that we have relatives that committed treason, that had to seek presidential pardons because they killed U.S. soldiers. Um, again, a difficult statement to make, but it's the truth. And it's the truth that the AP Hill family needs to recognize. And, and that's just, I guess that's the best way I can say that. No, I think that was well said. Yeah, thank you for yeah. addressing that. And then I also wanted to ask you, so we're looking at when we talk about this base renaming, like we're not just talking about like two bases. We're talking about a huge renaming um, yeah. campaign. Yeah, talking or, about 10. Yep. Okay, so yeah. I'm tracking Benning, Gordon, Rucker, Polk. There's one in Louisiana, um, Camp, do you know how to pronounce it? Beauregard? Oh, Beauregard, yeah. I have not, I've not heard of that one. Um, Bragg, Hood, and then AP Hill, Pickett, and Lee. Mm-hmm. So um, that's going to be a huge renaming for the military to do. Yeah. But, but um, very necessary. It, it, it's necessary. I mean, I, I was a Lieutenant Rucker. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of the, you know, in addition to being recruited in the Coast Guard, I wanted to serve in the Coast Guard because I didn't want to be on an army property where people would always ask me, are you related to Fort Rucker? Because I mean, I, w- I didn't get married until almost my end of my military career. And I, and I want to be the last Lieutenant Rucker who could possibly walk on Fort Rucker. And I want to do it because when you ask an African-American, you ask an Hispanic-American, you ask an Asian-American to walk on a base that is named for somebody who owned slaves, who fought for slavery, who said that if slaves were, you know, not even second-class citizens, they were subhuman beings, and then expect them to want to salute the flag on that base, that is, it's just, it's a, just, it's just nonsensical. It, it, it's, it kind of demonstrates the inability to realize that there is racism, that there is racial injustice, and that making them do that is racial injustice. It's, it, it's, it's just wrong. I, 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 I'm struggling to kind of answer, best answer, but again, it's just wrong. So it's my hope that the military works with the local community, and there are a lot of amazing men and women and I really say, and women, who have served our country with distinction. And by that, our country, the USA, not the Confederacy. And they should be recognized. Bases, U.S. bases should be named for those who served the United States going forward. So that, that's my position on that. No, I, I agree with you. And I think that that was well said. Definitely. And I, I look forward to seeing and I look forward to watching them decide how these bases are going to be renamed. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it bring in the local community, seek input, but seek input and make change. Don't draw this out. Just, just get this done. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Let's not, let's stop talking about it. Let's, and let's just let's, move. Let's just do it. And then, we yeah, can, yeah. you know, we'll, after a year, the new base name will click in your head and we can move on. <laughs> Right, right. Okay, so one last question before uh, I let you go. I wanted to ask you, um, because you're on the Carry On podcast, I ask all my guests this. uh, Can you think of a time in your life where you had to carry on through something that was was horrible or something that you didn't feel like you could get through, a situation or something, and then when you look back on it, you're like, how did I make it through that? Yeah, yeah. it was me being fired for reporting sexual assault. Um, again, I'm the main breadwinner. I was forced to resign. I was blackballed. I was um, banned from a federal building. They, uh, they said, fine, we'll give you money. This was part of the whole resign, get the three months, if you don't come back into this federal building. I was literally told, Ray LaHood never wants to see your face again. Okay. I had a miscarriage in the midst of this. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I could have had child number three. I had a miscarriage. And I made the decision after that not to have any other children because 
I didn't know if I was going to have insurance. I didn't know if I was going to have a job. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was a shitty part of my life, it, it, you know, but I, uh, put your big girl panties on and keep on walking, just keep on walking. And I walked my way into a new job. I walked my way into a secure marriage. I walked my way into, um, you know, having loving children. Um, and I just kept walking. Uh, and I did that because if I had stopped, if I had just collapsed, if I had just said, shit, man, I can't do this anymore, then the naysayers would have won. They would have successfully blackballed me. They would have successfully made sure that I didn't have a successful life. And they didn't do that because I kept walking. Um, can I imagine going through that amount of pain and trauma again in my life? God, no. <laughs> I really, really hope that never happens to me again. But I do know if it does, I have the ability um, through the support of my husband and my kids to be able to overcome uh, challenges like that in the future. So. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I think in life, yeah. we just don't know sometimes what life's going to throw at us. And, and that's a huge, that was a huge one for you, right? That was yeah. big. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was big. Um, but again, I, I had the support of my husband and my kids and, um, yeah, just, just keep carrying on, literally carrying on. Carry so, on. Yeah. Yes. I think, yeah. I think it's very literal here in, in this, yes, in this case. <laughs> yeah. Well, before I let you go, I wanted to know if there's anything else that you wanted to add. I, I would just, I just encourage folks to lead by example. Uh, you know, I, I am sharing my story because I want folks to realize that, yeah, life can sometimes give you some lemons, but then you make lemonade. Um, life can throw obstacles up, um, but you can jump over them. And sometimes life gives you a shitty hand, but if you play it, you can win. And, and that's, that, that's part of the reason what I've done over the past 10 years. I made sure that there was a situation that was pretty awful, and I turned it into something where I am now using that to hold DC leaders accountable for failing to address sexual assault in K through 12 schools. I you know, successfully worked with the auditor to find out that DC paid. 72 million in just 18 months for settlements and judgments. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I am using this experience to make sure that it never happens to anyone else ever again. And so I just, again, I encourage everyone just, just lead by example, use the bad stuff for good. So, but, uh, so, and thank you very much for having me. No, thank you very much for your time. We always appreciate talking to you. So, all right. Thank you, Denise. <laughs>